my great passions when I think of missions is this element of Bible translation. Lots of pieces go together, and the whole project of having an effective ministry in a different culture, but certainly one of the integral parts is translation into the Word of God. Eight years ago, I had the privilege of being a guest consultant, doing kind of what Joshua does, but since I'm kind of a rookie, they put the word guest in front of that. But had a chance to go to Nigeria, talk, talk about translation, worked with two different tribes, the Magdi and the Maya, up in northeastern Nigeria, a section of Nigeria that's overrun, controlled by Boko Haram. And these dedicated servants of God took their life in their hands to travel to Jos to, to meet with us. And actually, one of the books we were working on, one of the tribes was working on Hebrews. So we're just going right into our topic this morning. So you take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews 5. And as you do that, let's take a moment and let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, what privileged people we are in America. We have translation after translation, good translation after another good one. We have study notes in the bottom of our Bibles. Lord, you've done so much for us. But there are still so many people groups that don't have your word in their language. Lord, they need that. And I thank you for ministries like Bibles International and others that are translating your word as quickly as they can. But you can't do it so quickly because it's got to be right. So give these who consult and, and work with, give them wisdom and discernment as they do their job. And Lord, as we do our job, help us to focus on your word and what you want to tell us this morning. Help us to be ministered to and encouraged, and if necessary, corrected in our lives. And we thank you for that. In the name of Christ, we pray, and for his glory and for our good. Amen. Mark Twain once said, I can live two months on one good compliment. Statement reminded me of another one, a little more sarcastic. It says, said this, a pat on the back, only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. I want to talk about encouragement with you this morning, affirmation. We're studying a text today that's going to talk about the importance of encouragement. And we're going to see that this author of, of Hebrews was assured with the salvation and the future growth of his readers. I've been in ministry 49 years, and I can make this statement. It's not inspired, but it's from my experience. Most people I know are far better at complaining than they are at encouraging. Far better at correcting someone else than they are with encouraging and helping someone else. Even though we may agree with the, the backdoor philosophy of Abraham Lincoln, who said, a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. You know, we seem to think that if we command people long enough and we tell them, you know, straighten up, get your act together, do good, we think that works. Now, most of us know it wouldn't work if they said it to, to us, but we're convinced that it will work if we say it to them. Rather than saying, you know, I, I'm praying for you, I'm working with you, I'm excited to see the, those elements of growth that God is doing in, in your life, and I'm excited for how God wants to change your life. Now, I'm talking about encouragement, and if you're thinking, well, Winter today is talking about, he's talking like Joel Osteen. Where, where in the world did he get this stuff? Can I tell you, I, we get it right out of here. I want to tell you that the positive assurance 
that we see in this passage balances what we looked at last week, which was very frightening. And so following the strongest blast in the letter to the Hebrews comes to one of the most powerful, grandest statements of encouragement in certainly the last half of the, the New Testament. But before we get into the good part or the fun part of affirming, we've got to go backwards again. And I want to mention that this is the conclusion of one of the strongest warnings in all of the Bible. That's why I had you look at Hebrews 5. It began in the middle of chapter 5, and it goes all the way for for 24 verses to the end of of chapter 6. And I think this pattern that we see here, I think is an instructive pattern of how we deal with, with people who are having a difficult time in growth. It shows the effective pattern for for discipline. It goes well in the home with your children. It goes well in the body of Christ. This writer began with a stern rebuke. At the end of chapter 5, he said, You are dull of hearing. You're sluggish. You have not the capacity to understand the truth that I want to tell you. That's about as powerful of a rebuke as you can have. You're drinking milk. You can't eat solid food. And then we flip over to chapter 6, and he says, let us press on to maturity. Let let us grow. If that doesn't sound strong enough, the passage we looked at is certainly the most frightening warning I believe there is in Scripture. He says, you know, there are those of you that you've been enlightened. You've tasted of the heavenly gift of the Holy Spirit. You've known the power of, of, of the gospel in your life. But you're ignoring that. You're setting that aside. And someone so far in there falling away from Christ, they were unable to be removed from or renewed to repentance because God chose to take them home. I'm sure that some of these Hebrew believers were starting to think, uh-oh, is this me? Is this what's going to happen in my life? So now we want to talk about the value of a needed rebuke. Again, before we get into the good part, I want to look at that first phrase, though we speak in this way. Again, little words are important. In what way? In the word that the strong warning, words of warning in verses 4 to 8. It says, yet in your case, beloved. Just stop right at that word. Beloved. It's a simple meaning. It means loved ones. And I will tell you, if you look in your concordance, this is the only place in the book of Hebrews he calls them loved ones. Beloved, agapetas, love. He wants them to know that though he's coming to to them with with rebuke and correction, he's doing it because he loves them. That's the motive. The deep love he had for those believers was the motive for sharing that strict warning. And so I thought about that. I thought of American culture today. We are gushy, sentimental, touchy-feeling people. And about the worst thing you can do in our culture is hurt someone's feelings. Oh, wow. How do I hurt your feelings? <laughs> You're saying something bad about me. I'm going to go in the court and I'm, I'm going to cry. Do you know the gospel of Christ starts by hurting people's feelings? The pattern that is followed by this author is the exact pattern of the gospel. What has to, what has to start the gospel? See, the gospel can be called bad news and good news. The bad news has to come first before you can understand that the good news is good news. 
The gospel demands that we come to grips with who we are by our nature. We are sinful rebels against God. We are deserving of God's wrath. And without the recognition of that reality, guess what? There's no real gospel. The gospel tells us that the God who made you and me, he recognizes our, our depravity. And he comes to us and he explains the consequences of sin, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He wants us to be able to to run to Christ to experience redemption, the forgiveness of sin, according to Colossians 1.14. And even once we become part of the body of Christ, we still need to recognize that oftentimes we we are engaged in and we become enriched and enthralled with our own sin. And the most loving thing that you can do for your brother or sister in Christ is to point that out. See, this writer is like, you're babies, you're, you're immature, you, you're in danger of falling away. Okay, I point this out because we are thin-skinned in America, easily offended, quickly hurt. Beloved, same word, can I tell you? If someone comes to you in a spirit of love to correct you because I see you going in the wrong direction, buck it up and listen. Listen to what they say. So we are a country today. Let's listen to the news. We're, we're whiners. We're complainers. And if anybody says something negative about us, no matter how constructive their message is, we slump into a fit of self-justification, woundedness, or else we dial 1-800-CALL-SAM and we file a harassment suit. As children of God, we need to learn not to be so thin-skinned. When someone who's part of the body of Christ comes to you in a spirit of love, give serious consideration to the wounds that a friend gives, who's doing nothing more than helping you to grow in Christ. Now, I thought you were going to talk about encouragement, Bob. That was your job. Well, I'm there now. The encouragement of positive assurance. And that's these four verses we're going to look at. After blasting away at them, after warning them, then he turns to the importance of being assured. And I'm glad for this balance, this example, the encouragement of positive assurance. And it starts out with simply a statement of assurance. So let me encourage parents to listen carefully. If you are a boss or a supervisor, listen carefully. If we're great at finding fault, we're weak at being encouraging came across this uh, statement of, in a book called Managing Through People. It says, most supervisors constantly look for and point out mistakes made by their subordinates with suggestions as how they can be corrected. And too often that is all they do. They fall into the category of supervisors who fit the complaint in this old couplet. Twice I did well. And that I never heard. Once I did ill. And that I heard ever, forever. And that's not what the writer does here, thankfully. Though we speak in this way, beloved, with tenderness, with love. It's you, he says, you who we love. Now, the word you there is plural. I guess in southern English we could call it, it's y'all. 
I'm talking to y'all, not y'all in your family, but y'all in the body of Christ. All y'all who are loved, y'all who are receiving this letter. I'm telling you, I am convinced that God is going to do better things in your life. I'm convinced that you will pursue those things that accompany salvation, even though I have been speaking in this way. And that's what they need. He says to the writer, in regard to y'all, I'm convinced of better things, even as I've been warning you about your spiritual immaturity. I don't know if you care about little things like pronouns. I think pronouns are pretty important when you're looking at the scripture. And I think it's very significant in the first three verses, he's talking about us. Let us pursue maturity. And this we will do. I mean, I like that. The writer's humility. I mean, I'm one of you. I need to grow. I need to press on to maturity. If he gets to verses 4 to 8, he turns to they. He turns to, to them. But when he comes to verse 9, he says, now we're talking about you. To you who represent this situation. I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Even though I've been speaking in stern words to you and I've been warning you, I'm convinced that God is going to do better things in your life. There's a shift. And again, I want to stop just a moment for some application. I think there's something terribly affirming about hearing words of encouragement from someone you respect. It's not a bunch of flattery. It's not a bunch of hot air, but it's a sincere compliment. Uh, Chuck Swindoll told the story about a time when he was driving along the road and at that point in time, he had one of his sons who was only a five or six. And they passed by a reformatory, you know, grim-looking, ugly building, scary-looking. I mean, mounted on the wall, there were, there were enclosed booths, there were, there were armed guards with weapons looking over the grounds outside. And Swindoll thought, this might be a good point for me to give a nice lesson for my child. He said, son, that's where they put kids who don't obey their parents and end up doing bad things. Uh, slowly, his son began to slump down in the seat. He became very quiet. And a couple of, I guess he's in the back seat, so I couldn't see him. And a couple of minutes later, he said, Daddy, how often do kids have to disobey before they go there? Uh, Daddy, if you say you're sorry, will you still have to go there? And then he was quiet. And quickly, Chuck pulled over the side and, and, and said, Kurt, you're never going to be behind that wall. I, I think better of you. That's not going to happen to you. And that night, in his, his bedtime prayer, he talked to God about the whole experience. He said, help my daddy never to forget his promise. <laughs> now, I think what he was saying is that he was convinced of better things. You see, there, there's a craving inside of all of us. All of us want to be encouraged. All of us want to be affirmed. All of us want to be respected by those who, who we love and who love us. I think there's a question we want to ask here. We've been seeing their problems. Why is he so convinced that this is going to happen? Why after 54 verses in the first six chapter of warnings, more verses about warnings in these first six chapters than there are verses about how great Christ is, why is he convinced? How could he speak with such tenderness to them? Well, again, let's finish looking at verse 9. 
beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, and you still do. So let's think about that phrase, the things that belong to salvation. Now here, he doesn't tell us exactly what they are, so I'm going to suggest what are some things that accompany someone who is, is genuinely saved. I just broke them down into to, to three categories. There are some things that Christ does in your life that are invisible. No one sees. I, I have a list of a couple of them. One, you find a bigger list in Romans 8. One is we have the right to come to God and cry out what? Abba, Father. We have that, we have that privilege. In Romans 8.16, we have the Holy Spirit who himself bears witness to the truth that we belong to Christ. We are children of God. John 14.27 says, you have the personal peace of Christ. Now, people don't see that in you. But those are invisible things that come along with your salvation. And then we have internal things that are actually visible to other people. And here I'm thinking of the fruit of the Spirit. When the fruit of the Spirit is demonstrated in your life, people see, right? You're a little more patient. You're a little less prone to, to anger. Character qualities that come because the Holy Spirit is working and sanctifying us and producing his fruit. One of the commentaries I looked at said this, authentic Christian life produces authentic Christian character. And such characters added ground proof for substantial confidence. But the emphasis here in this passage certainly is on outer works, good works. Again, look at verse 10. It starts with the little word for. That means because. Here I, here's how I know it's going to be true. Your lives demonstrate love through your actions. And he gives one very clear, later in the book of Hebrews, he gives one very specific example of how they demonstrated their love by their good works. In Hebrews 10 and verse 34, he said, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better position. I look at that. Thankfully, I've never had anybody plunder my property. But I'm not so sure that I would accept it. I'm absolutely sure it would be done joyfully. But here, their maturity was demonstrating their love for those who were living in the streets under harsh conditions, living under the assault of Emperor Nero. He said, I remember your work. I remember your labor of love you extended to others. And that Christian lifestyle was, was filled with, with courage, giving themselves for others. And notice in verse 10, he's, he's saying it didn't just happen in the past, but it says, in serving the saints as you still do. They're still doing that. And what I love about verse 10 is after rebuking them, he also remembers the good. There's a line out of, Julius Caesar, the play written by Shakespeare. And Shakespeare puts his, his finger on, on, on a general truth of the human race. This is a speech given by Brutus, and it begins very familiar words. Friends, Romans, countrymen, give me your ear. I've come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Then he adds this statement. He says, the evil that men do 
lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. What's he saying? When you think of somebody, you tend to remember what? The bad. The things where they disappointed you. The things they did wrong. What don't you think about too much? The good things that they do. We think about their failures and their weaknesses. And sometimes parents, you know what? That's how we treat our children. We remember the bad things they've done. You know, I, I, I know we can go too extreme and, and overblow this. We can blow too much smoke over here. But that's not what this writer's doing, because this is in a context where he's just read the riot act to them. And he says, not only am I remembering, but God will also remember. God will not forget the work you've done. He will not forget your labor of love. And how many of us need that? We, we need that encouragement. One pastor who was given the privilege of, of traveling to the mission field, he was going there to, to minister to some of the missionaries and to speak at one of their conferences. And he went to one of his elders in the church and he asked, what do you think I should do, should I speak about to these, this group of missionaries? I have, no, I have no doubt what you should speak about. You should encourage them. Speak about encouragement. Affirm them. Talk about their work. Talk about their labor of love. Is that, is that a good idea? That's what we, and you know where the good place to start with it is? Dwayne, in your house. Husbands with your wives. Wives with your husbands. Not just some fancy expression of, of love on your anniversary, <laughs> Valentine's Day, but regularly quiet words of encouragement, honest words of affirmation. I'm kind of wondering sometimes, is there maybe a reason why there's a lot of infidelity in marriages? Just regular, honest words of affirmation. Things like, you know, I, I respect you. I appreciate what, what you do. I want to thank you for that. Good job. Words of honest encouragement motivate us in our relationship with one another. Now, let me suggest if God is not so unjust to forget our good works, then guess what we better do if we follow his model? We better not be so unjust as to forget the good works of others. And so in verses 11 and 12, he gives what I want to call the clarification of assurance. Uh, can I give you a thought here? Don't take this message this morning and say, I'm going to sit back and, and I'm, I'm going to wait for someone to affirm me. I'm going to wait for somebody to encourage me. Can we, like, turn it around? Maybe nobody's encouraging you, but maybe you could be the one to go out and you can affirm them. You can in encourage them. So let's look at a couple things. I, I see it here in verse 11. I see what I call the positive side. There's a responsibility here. That's the responsibility of, of you encouraging others. He says, and we desire each one of you. Again, he's kind of back in their face a little. He's talking about encouragement, but he says, I, I want you to do three things. I want you to, to, first of all, I want you to show the same earnestness. The same earnestness as what? The same earnestness as to what he did, what they were doing in Hebrews 10, continuing to work with, to continuing to give hope to people in their, in their walk with Christ. 
He's saying, stand strong, buck it up, continue to encourage others. Then there's that negative side. So that you may not be sluggish. Now, again, words are important. And I believe because the Spirit of God inspired words, the Spirit of God puts them in different places. If you remember Hebrews chapter 5, he told them that they were dull of hearing. The word dull of hearing is translated here in verse, what's it, verse 12, as being sluggish. Dull, sluggish. It's only used twice in the New Testament, once in Hebrews 5, once in Hebrews 6, once at the beginning of what he said, once at the end of what he said. He said, don't be sluggish. The word here means thick, you know, kind of lazy, slow to respond, hard to move. He said, don't give in to moods of laziness. Keep doing what is right. And then third, we have the example side. Keep your eye on positive models. Notice that phrase, imitators of who? Those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. As you work, imitate those rare people who patiently hold on to their faith in tough times. They continue on with, with patience and with faith. See, there's that internal motivation that we see in the lives of of other people. Hang in there, be tough, be committed to encouragement. So, look, you serve the Lord, you're working regularly, but you're kind of discouraged this morning. Somebody's not really come alongside and encourage you, ready to give it up. Are you weary in well-doing? Can I just encourage you to hang in there? Do, do the tough things. Uh, you're not getting the strokes that you deserve. Uh, be diligent, don't be sluggish, don't be lazy, but through faith and patience continue in your service to God. He knows you and he's promised, I'm not going to forget your labor of love. I've got it written down and I will honor you and I'll reward you for it. I've got some quick applications for you. I think they're important. I'll probably go a little quickly here, but first can I encourage you, stop focusing on the bad side of others. And again, parents, you've got to discipline. You've got to correct wrong. I get that. And if you refuse to say no to your kids, you're in big trouble. Pastors, we know that's our job not to ignore sins in the lives of believers, but to confront that sin. But make sure that we follow this example. Do what we can to be an encouragement and affirm. You probably guess number two because it takes the opposite. Start focusing on the positives in others' lives, their, their strengths. We have a God-given duty to encourage. And the word encourage in English just means to put courage in. Encourage. Encourage them. Put them in someone else. Charles Schwab was one of the first men in America to earn over a million dollars in a year. Why did Andrew Carnegie, who hired him, pay him $3,000 a day back when $3,000 a day was more than you could even conceive. Uh, why? He didn't understand the steel industry at all. He had no technical knowledge of what the company was doing. Uh, he received a large sum of money for only one reason. He knew how to deal with people. In his own words, this was the secret, and I, I will quote it. He said, 
I consider my ability to arouse enthusiasm among men the greatest ability I possess. And the way to develop the best that is in another is by appreciation and encouragement. There's nothing else that so kills the ambition of men and women than criticism from superiors. I believe in giving others incentive to work. And I love this last phrase. That's why I put it in red. I'm anxious to praise, but I loathe to find fault. Is that you? Is that me? I'm looking for exa- I'm looking to praise someone. When I have to, if I have to come alongside and deal with a fault, I'll do it. But it's not something I enjoy doing. It. It's a strong, strong word. Let's, let's also look beyond the past failures of others. I didn't say overlook. Look beyond means you've extended grace, just as God has extended grace to you. You extended forgiveness. You're repairing a relationship. Uh, make sure that we look past. Number four, let's recognize the better side. Just as he talks about the better side of things that compare, uh, follow salvation. Let me ask you a couple. Do you remember when you were first, first few days when you fell in love? time of, of your, your marriage, when I perform a wedding ceremony and I give the, the sermon in a wedding service, I know the husband and wife don't know one thing I said. I mean, they're all lovey-dovey up there. They're just kind of, wait, well, you just pronounce us you know, husband and wife and let's get this going. I mean, they're thinking about each other. And we're first married, well, touchy-touchy, right, and kissy-kissy and lovey-lovey. That's, that's all part of it. We're, we kept focusing at the good side. And I would encourage us, there's no substitute for a personal touch. And touch is the, is the word here. Hugs of affirmation, shaking of the hand, arm around the shoulder. A man named Howard Maxwell, is in his book called Friendship Factor, uh, it says when his four little, four-year-old daughter, Melinda, acquired a fixation for the three little pigs, and he demanded, or she demanded that her father read it to her, every single night. After a few nights, he got a little tired of doing this. And for you that are younger, I'll have to explain this to you. He actually tape recorded it on a device where he could play back a a tape. And so all he did is he showed her how she could push the button and every night she could hear the three little pigs. That worked for a couple of nights. But then... One evening, Melinda pushed the storybook back at her father. He said, well, now, honey, you you know how to turn on the recorder. This is how you do it. She said, yeah, but I can't sit on its lap. You're not going to be loving people by sending them a text, okay? You might have to do that face-to-face. You might have to do that looking at them. Texts are, are fine, but we need to see presence. There's that physical aspect that's there. Now, if you're like me, there's no one who knows my weaknesses better than me. There's probably no one who knows your weaknesses better than you. And we can beat ourselves up with with that. We replay our failures. We we, we remember our bad decisions. We remember the times when we disappointed the Lord with with our sin. So we do need people to come alongside and, and to encourage us. And last year, people are more important than things. I don't think you need me to tell you. I hope you, I hope you know that. 
uh, your children will remember how you treated them much more than they will remember all of the things you, you gave to them. You see, as I wrap this up, I think there's a dilemma. When we talk about affirming others, and we look at ourselves and how well we're doing it, we tend to compare ourselves with somebody else that we know that doesn't do it at all. So we can kind of say, well, I'm better than that person. I do a better job than she does. I believe that we can fool ourselves to think we're a, we're a great encouragement to other people when we really aren't. I think we can learn, as, as an older guy now, I think we can learn how well we brought up our children, we listen to what our children say about us when they're older. What do they remember? Well, they remember some of the top things you, wanted, you thought they forgot. What do they forget? Some of the good things you did, did for them. As I, I wrap up, I want to just share this last story. I want to read you the story of a man who actually read his own obituary in the paper. It was in 1988, and the man was a man whose name you'll be familiar with. His name was Alfred Nobel. He was the inventor of dynamite. And inadvertently, some editor of the paper got it wrong, and he, Alfred's brother died. And instead of printing his obituary, he got it mixed up, and he pr printed the obituary of Alfred Nobel himself. So he opens up the paper, and to know what the paper called him? A merchant of death. He was the inventor of dynamite, and how the world is different because of the explosive device. And the story goes, I'm going to read it. As he read the obituary with horror, he resolved to make clear to the world the true meaning and purpose of his life. His last will and testament would be the expression of his life's ideal and ultimately would be why we would remember him. The result was the most valued of prizes given to those who had done the most for world peace. You know what it's called today, right? The Nobel Peace Prize. It's the one who invented dynamite. See, you may think you're affirming, but what would people say in your obituary, and how would you respond if you had to read your own? Since we can't do that, then guess what we need to do? Start living in a way that we could rewrite it. Start focusing on their strengths, start encouraging, start uh, affirming, forget some of the darkness, and remember the brighter side. Let's do that as part of our day. I'll end with Hebrews, it tells us in Hebrews 3 that we are to encourage one another. What's the next word? Daily. <laughs> Every day commanded to do that. We have the example here. Now, let's do it. Let's bow together as we pray. Father in heaven, you made it very clear. In Romans 8, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that doesn't mean nobody is against us. It means that what does it matter when there are people who are against us? The great thought is that you are for us. Lord, we're often asked who's on the Lord's side. Let me ask the question, do we know that he's on our side? Lord, he's on our side. You care about us. You have dealt with us in grace and mercy. Certainly, Lord, you do not excuse our sin. But I pray, Father, you would help us as your family to be encouragers, to be affirmers to those 
in our church family. And Lord, help us to do that regularly, not just once in a while. Help us do it honestly. And certainly if there are times when we may have to come alongside and correct. And if someone who comes alongside of me, who's someone who constantly encourages me, I, I take that more seriously. I'm more apt to listen. So, Father, we thank you that you have given to us all things richly and freely to enjoy. And that's your affirmation of us. And, and Father, I think of those who might be here this morning and they don't know Christ. They've never met him. And they're living, recognizing this morning their, their failures and their sin. Help them to run to you today and experience through faith the forgiveness that you offer to them. I pray, Father, that you would just work in our lives so we reflect the image of Christ, that we live out the, the gospel in our relationships to others. And we thank you in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand up. You're dismissed. Please go to the Weaver Center, get your treat, and come on back in about 25 minutes for our Sunday.